Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A draft of the latest nuclear posture review would increase the number of situations where the U.S. would use nuclear weapons. We'll discuss whether the threats and the strategy add up. Countries around the world have different approaches to health care. I'll talk with the director of health and human rights divisions at Human Rights Watch. And we'll find out about research for change in India. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. The Defense Department is tasked with reviewing the country's nuclear strategy every four years. The latest nuclear posture review is expected to be released next month. A leak of a draft copy has surfaced. We're going to talk about it now with Joe Cirincione, president of the Plowshares Fund. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Joe. My pleasure, Jerome. I think the thing that has people concerned about this draft copy of the nuclear posture review is that it seems like the U.S. is pivoting to a situation where it would have more low-yield, usable nuclear weapons and expand the number of situations they would use them in. That's exactly right. This review, which I understand is being presented to President Trump today as we speak, uh, would keep the existing Cold War arsenal of about 4,000 nuclear weapons that we have, about uh, 1,000 of these are on hair-trigger alert, ready to launch at any minute. But then it would expand that arsenal by adding a new suite of what it calls more usable nuclear weapons, uh, lower yield, so not the hydrogen bombs the, uh, that we have in the current arsenal, but more atomic bombs like the ones we used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So when they say low yield, they mean Hiroshima size. And these would be deployed on two, three, maybe more new weapons that they would develop. But then what's really disturbing is that they greatly expand the missions for nuclear weapons. Most people think we have nuclear weapons in order to stop someone else from attacking us. And that, in fact, it was what the previous policy had been, that the, the, the primary purpose of nuclear weapons is, to, is nuclear deterrence, to prevent a nuclear attack in the United States. But this says no, What we want to do is open it up so that these nuclear weapons can be used in a broad, as they say, across a broad spectrum of adversaries, threats, and contexts. In other words, just they're returning to these outmoded ideas from the 1950s where nuclear weapons were part of a continuum of military assets that combat commanders would have to respond to a variety of sources. And they specifically talk about going after underground bunkers or mobile targets or and this is what worries people a lot, even a cyber attack. So if somebody hacks into the U.S. infrastructure, we might respond with a nuclear weapon. 
Now, how does the report assess the threats facing the U.S.? Because it sounds like what they're doing is saying, well, we are facing a changing, increased threat, and we are going to deter it with these nuclear weapons here. That's exactly right. They spend the good part of this um, study uh, frightening people, scaring us that the world is more dangerous than it was before, uh, deriding the, the the actions of its predecessors who uh, they di- they discount, that threats have gotten worse um, over the last ten years. They ignore some many of the gains we've made. For example, a successful diplomatic effort that rolled back Iran's nuclear program and froze it for at least fifteen years. Uh, what this was once considered the most dangerous nuclear threat in the world. Uh, they ignore gains we've made against. Uh, against terrorists and locking up some of the materials so terrorists have a harder time getting it. They say, no, 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 it's more dangerous. There are more adversaries out there, and, and, and we're not doing anything. They present the United States as a passive observer to these increased threats. They specifically talk about great power conflict. They talk about Russia. They talk about China in this. And so, therefore, what they say is we have to build up. And in effect, this is operationalizing Donald Trump's worst impulses. You may remember a year ago, he told Mika Brzezinski, let it be an arms race. Well, this nuclear posture review is a, is a blueprint for a, a new nuclear arms race. He said he wanted a bigger – he had a bigger button just this beginning of this month. Well, this nuclear posture review gives him a bigger button. He asked – why do we have nuclear weapons if we don't use them? Well, this posture review gives him plenty of opportunities and a justification for using them even in non-nuclear situations, even when we're confronting what we call a conventional threat, something involving the usual bomb, ships, planes that people use or are used to. I'm talking with Joe Serencioni, president of the Plowshares Fund, and we're talking about the latest nuclear posture review. A draft copy has surfaced. It is going to the president today and is expected to be out next month. Is there any chance that someone can step in and tone some of this stuff down before uh, it, it hits the real world? Uh, the I mean, people look at General Mattis and say, well, he he's going he can tamp this down a bit. Uh, is there anyone standing between and there there were supposed to be uh, several review copies and this is one of them. Uh, is there a chance that we're uh, going to see something different next month? It, it's possible. Um, th- this is said to be I have it in front of me right now. This is uh, uh, for official use only, but it was clearly leaked. As I understand it, their original plan was to leak it to Fox News and to get a very favorable frame for this posture review, and they would then officially release it. That didn't work out. Somebody at Huffington Post got it. HuffPost got it. Um, And so, yes, there are still changes since it's not been officially released. It could be modified, but I, I think that's unlikely. But there is good news. Congress can work on this. One of the the weak points of this strategy is that it costs a heck of a lot of money. It basically endorses the existing programs, which the Congressional Budget Office says will cost $1.7 trillion over the next couple of decades, and then it adds new weapons. Well, budget experts in the Pentagon, in the Congress, already know we can't afford the existing program. We just don't have the money. We'd have to squeeze out ships and tanks and planes, stuff we really use. And so it's going to be a hard sell to get this, these kinds of new weapons uh, approved. Uh, 
In fact, this is basically a recycling of failed efforts that were proposed under President George W. Bush 16 years ago. They, too, proposed new weapons, new warheads. The Congress defeated that. So Congress can be a break on this kind of policy if they're willing to use their power. What do you think the Defense Department is doing here with this uh, proposition. Talk me down here if you think I need it. But it seems like, you know, like the nuclear guys in the Defense Department, they're pretty far down in the totem pole these days. They don't Mm. really rank. And this is an opportunity Mm. for them to get more, to get more status, to get more stuff. Is that, could that be happening? I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, one way to look at this is that this is the nuclear bureaucracy, that is the, the contractors who build the nuclear weapons, the service personnel who staff the nuclear weapons, the laboratories who design the nuclear weapons, and this is their wish list. And I understand there were even crazier ideas in this that got culled out, but, but you could look at this as a shopping list, not a strategy. A shopping list, here are weapons we want to build, and they put a sort of Trumpian chapeau over it to turn it into language that they think the president will will support. But it's the nuclear complex is vast. We spend about $50, 55000000000 billion a year on nuclear weapons and related programs. So that, that buys a lot of jobs, a lot of contractors. This is a formidable force. But it, it pales in comparison to the $700 billion we spend on the military overall. So the, in some ways, this nuclear posture view is their sales pitch. They want to scare you as much as possible, you know, just straight commercial strategy, you know, um, and then convince you that they have a military solution to these threats. And if we don't build these weapons, uh, people will die. This is their moment uh, to to make their budget case. Uh, I actually don't think the thing is actually written very well. I think the logic starts to fall apart. But we'll see over the next couple of months. It seems like the most scary thing that the report presents is a new class of Russian nuclear torpedo, a uh, intercontinental nuclear-armed autonomous torpedo. Uh, this is uh, AI in, in, in practice or something that is going to come at us in the form of a nuclear torpedo. Uh, it, how, how real is that? We don't know how real this is, but, but this was something that Putin did over two years ago. He, he intentionally leaked a slide of this that a general was reading as he was photographed in a meeting. And this would be basically an an underwater cruise missile, something that would be launched from Russia and would travel under the water to the United States and set off a nuclear explosion in what they call a nuclear tsunami in a port city, say New York. Uh, I don't think it can get to Chicago. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and because it would be, you know, it's a torpedo, so it has to travel underwater. That takes days. This is not something you launch in minutes. This takes days to go through the ocean. And so it has to be autonomous. So like you say, artificial intelligence to guide it. And that means basically you can't call it back. This is a really doomsday torpedo. Does this thing really exist? It's unclear. Are the Russians really going to build this? They certainly hyped it. Putin has talked about it. Uh, We don't know yet. But this is exactly the kind of thing you want to avoid. Instead of throwing nuclear fuel on the arms race, what you want to do is re-engage with Russia, with other nuclear armed states. There are nine countries with nuclear weapons in the world, including North Korea, and talk them, everybody down. Let's reduce the number of nuclear weapons. This, in fact, is what we've been doing since Richard Nixon 
capping the nuclear arms race and then under Ronald Reagan reducing it, we we cut by some 85% the number of nuclear weapons in the world since Ronald Reagan. This posture review abandons that effort. It specifically abandons it. It leaves a sliver of light left that maybe we'd be open to arms control uh, talks. But in the process, it abandons American leadership. We have led the way in, in nuclear reduction talks and other nuclear security measures. This abandons all that and goes for a full-fledged armed race and a, a suite of new weapons and expansion of nuclear missions that the president could use. If you think this president needs more weapons with more missions and fewer constraints, then this is the posture review you've been looking for. The review does talk about China as a growing nuclear power. My impression was always that they had a teeny nuclear deterrent compared to ours and Russia's. Uh, is there any truth to that? Uh, it's funny. People in the nuclear field talk about China as having perhaps the most rational of all the nuclear policies. They only have about 200, uh, maybe 250 nuclear weapons. They follow something called minimal deterrence. They think this is enough to stop another country from attacking them. We don't need the 4,000, 5,000 that the U.S. and Russia have. And they're right. It doesn't take many nuclear weapons to deter you. Look at North Korea. They only have 20, maybe 30 weapons. Maybe a few of those can reach us. We are very worried about them. So China's sized their arsenal about right. And the posture review argues that they're building new ones, which is true, and they're modernizing their ICBMs, which is true, and they're maybe growing incrementally, which is true, but it's nowhere near the threat that the posture review presents. Joe Serencioni is president of the Plowshares Fund. We've been talking about the latest nuclear posture review. A leak draft copy has surfaced, and uh, we'll see what the the real one comes out when probably next month. President Trump is looking at it today. Joe, thanks a lot for joining us again. Thank you, Jerome. Always a pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about health care and human rights. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Article 25 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says that everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and his family, and that includes medical care. Diederik Lohmann is acting director of the Health and Human Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. He's an expert on health rights, palliative care, and global drug policy. Welcome to the program. Nice to meet you. Thank you. It's nice to meet you, too. 
I don't think most people understand uh, healthcare in the human rights framework. That's why I decided to read from the Declaration on Human Rights. But it's in there, and um, you guys are going at it. Absolutely. I think our health often is the greatest asset that we have. And so when we struggle with our health, international human rights norms say that we should have access to appropriate care. And the United States is one of the countries that kind of thinks of it more as a commodity, not a necessarily a right, as many countries do. Yes, I think traditionally that is correct, although I think there's been a significant shift over the, you know, the last few years. I mean, we've seen that with the discussions around the uh, uh, Obamacare replacement plans that you know, have failed. To date, a lot of that discussion has been around you know, people need access to health care services. And so it's not just kind of a luxury. It's something that is essential to people's lives. One of the projects you've been working on is on pain and palliative care. Explain the difference between like a place like the United States and a place in the developing world. So the work that we've done on palliative care or end-of-life care is maybe a term that people are more familiar with. We see more and more people who develop chronic illnesses um, towards the end of life and end up um, living the last months or years of their lives with a series of health conditions that often cause a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And so what our work has been looking at is what kind of healthcare services are available to those individuals. In the U.S., hospice care, of course, is very well known. In many low- and middle-income countries, that basically does not exist. And so I was in Guatemala, and in Guatemala, most people who are dying of cancer, for example, do not have access to any kind of pain medications, no morphine. They often are told by their physicians that there's nothing that can be done for them anymore. Um, They're sent home, and they die in their homes in really awful circumstances. And is there a recognition that the physicians could do something if they had the money to get morphine? Is that the idea? In healthcare, money often is the big obstacle. Um, When it comes to end-of-life care, that is actually not the case. Morphine can be produced at a very, very low cost. It's not a patented medication. And so what we've seen in many of the countries where we've worked is that the biggest barrier is related to the fact that morphine is like a cousin of heroin. And so there's a potential for abuse of the medication. And that means that many governments put in place kind of regulations around the use of these medications that are so onerous, either for physicians or to patients, that the medications become unavailable. To give you an example, in Guatemala, when a patient receives a prescription for morphine, That prescription cannot be filled by the pharmacy until the patient obtains a stamp authorizing the prescription from the Ministry of Health. They have to travel to one office of the Ministry of Health in the entire country in order to get that authorizing stamp. Well, you can imagine if you're a cancer patient and you're dying of pancreatic cancer and you're six hours away from Guatemala City, there is no way that you are going to be able to make that journey in order to get your prescription validated and filled. And so in many countries, it's much more kind of the regulatory barriers or fears among physicians 
questions about prescribing these kinds of medications than money that is the big obstacle. Well, if you go to them and, and explain the situation and do a report on this, do they change what they're doing? Does that make a difference? So we've worked on this issue in about 10 different countries, and most of them have taken steps to address kind of some of the problems that we've been able to identify together with our, our local partners. For example, in, in Mexico, a few years ago, we collected testimonies from a lot of patients and doctors about the challenges that they were facing in receiving and providing um, palliative care. And we took those testimonies to the Ministry of Health, and that led to to a complete change in the way these medications are prescribed. And I think in part because the kind of top-level people in the Ministry of Health understood, kind of could relate to the stories. I mean, it could have been their mother, right, or brother. Um, and so there was this kind of human element. And maybe in part also because, you know, kind of the reporting that we do kind of exposes a neglect that is really, I mean, leads to gross suffering for a lot of people. And so I think there was also kind of this, you know, reputational fear that was a, a motivating factor for them to act. I'm talking with Diederik Lohmann. He's an acting director of the Health and Human Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. And we're talking about palliative care right now around the world. You know, it's interesting. You know, it sounds like these people are afraid of something that the United States seems to be wrestling with, which is some overprescription of addictive drugs. Uh, we've got this opioid crisis. Are there places that do this just right? Is there some kind of sweet spot in, on this? That's a great question. If you look at the use of kind of this class of medications, right, they're called opioid analgesics is the technical term. The U.S. has the highest usage of these medications of any country in the world. But there are countries like Switzerland or the United Kingdom that also have high levels of use of these medications but are not experiencing the same kind of problems with accidental overdose deaths that we're seeing here. Uh, I have never seen good research that has kind of examined why have things gone so wrong in this country and in Switzerland they're not seeing the same kind of problems. That comparative research, I don't think it has been conducted. I think it would be very important to conduct it because, you know, we're dealing with a conundrum uh, here where there are a lot of patients uh, who need palliative care, who need management of chronic pain, for whom these kinds of medications are essential to their quality of life. And on the other hand, obviously, when people accidentally overdose in, you know, tens of thousands on these medications, you know, we're not finding that balance. And so I think the U.S. could learn a lot from how other countries seem to be doing much better than we are here. There seems to be a rush to blame the doctors for the opioid crisis in the United States, whereas the explanation comparatively, I mean, are our doctors just, you know, goofier with their scripts than in Switzerland? Probably not. It's probably something else. 
I think there's a range of factors that I think allowed for kind of this perfect storm in the United States. We've seen a lot of reporting over the last few years about the role of the pharmaceutical industry in aggressively promoting these medications. The FDA allowed pharmaceutical companies to kind of talk about abuse deterrence, basically kind of claiming that new formulations of these medications made it impossible for them to be abused. And it turned out to be as easy as crushing the tablets and snorting or injecting them in order to get a high off them. And so I think there were regulatory failures. There certainly um, was very aggressive uh, promotion by pharmaceutical companies, um, often you know, using tactics, you know, kind of exaggerating the safety of the medications and that contributed. But then we also have to consider in the United States, health insurance also plays a very significant uh, role in kind of dictating the way doctors operate. You know, I was talking to a friend who's a family physician a few months ago and she said, you know, a typical patient for me is someone who has diabetes, is obese, has high blood pressure, cholesterol, and chronic pain. And I have 15 minutes with that individual, and there's no way I can deal in substance or appropriately with each of those health complaints. And so in the end, you know, I don't want my patient to go home, you know, unsatisfied. And so I get my prescription pad and I write a prescription. And so I think there's been this tendency in the United States, you know, to look for a kind of a silver bullet, to look for that simple solution to a really complex problem. And, you know, chronic pain is a complex health problem, and there isn't a simple kind of one-pill solution to it. I'm talking with Diedrich Lohmann from Human Rights Watch, and we're talking about uh, health rights and palliative care and the global drug policy. I know you've done some work on a drug, and I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm so unfamiliar with it, but it's the drug that you give to someone who has overdosed. What is this drug, and why have you been advocating for it? So the drug is called naloxone, and it's basically when someone overdoses on an opioid, their breathing, their respiratory system stops. What naloxone does if it's administered quickly after the overdose occurs is it reverses the effect on the respiratory system of the overdose victim and abruptly brings them back to life. And it's a medication that has been used for decades. It's been used over the last few years to reverse many thousands of overdoses. The problem, however, is that it's still a prescription medication. And so you need a prescription from a physician in order to be able to get the medication. And so what we've been saying is this is a life-saving medication that has been used for decades for which there are no known serious side effects or potential for abuse, this is a medication that should be available over-the-counter at a pharmacy. What the both the Obama administration and the Trump administration have been promoting the use of this medication by first responders, so fire department, police department, in many places in this country are now carrying naloxone. But the reality, of course, is that they are not the first people on the scene of an overdose. If 911 is called, someone has to dial. And if that person had access to naloxone, they would be able to reverse overdoses more efficiently than first responders. 
So families of drug users, friends of drug users, uh, they would have this and be able to use it in theory. Yeah. So one of the most effective HIV prevention interventions that we have is to provide people who inject drugs with clean syringes. These kinds of programs, in addition to providing people with clean syringes, they should also be providing people with naloxone. However, in quite a few states, there are still significant regulatory and legal barriers to these kinds of programs that are focused on health of people who use drugs. And so we feel that in addition to making naloxone available over the counter at pharmacies, there need to be changes in order to make sure that every state in this country has so-called harm reduction programs, programs that you know do exchange of, of needles, needles for people who use drugs and provide other basic healthcare services to drug users. Who's in charge of making the, those kind of changes? So for the medication naloxone, in the end, it's the FDA that has to approve over-the-counter status. And so we would like to see the producers, the pharmaceutical companies that are producing the medication to put in the application with the FDA. Obviously, some pressure from the side of Congress and the White House to kind of expedite that procedure, you know, would also be very helpful in getting to the change in status. The regulations around need exchange programs. That's really a state-by-state effort. Well, it's interesting hearing about what's going on in the field of health rights and palliative care and global drug policy. Diederik Lohmann is Acting Director of Health and Human Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about um, drugs. (laughs) Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. We'll hear about some young barefoot researchers in Mumbai. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And I'm delighted to have with me in the studio Dr. Anita Deshmukh, and she is the executive director of PUKAR. It's a Mumbai-based NGO that trains teams of barefoot researchers to produce cultural-changing research. And they are one of the organizations that we visited when I went to India with the India Development Service, and I saw their offices in Mumbai. We went and toured a slum with some barefoot researchers who did some health and environmental work in a slum there. Uh, We've got a video of that trip online, and people can see the movie of the slum, which is very affecting. And I'm glad to have you in the studio with us again, Anita. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me here back in the studio. It feels great. 
to be in Chicago. <laughs> you know, I think most people hear the term barefoot researchers and they don't know what it means practically. What do people who do this work do when they get out there? Give us an example of what they're out there doing. So the barefoot researchers term was coined by Professor Arjuna Padrai, who is a renowned cultural anthropologist. And what it means is actually it is based on his essay called Right to Research, and where we have actually democratized research and taken it out of big, big universities and brought it down to communities. And we recruit or we invite community-based youth without any condition of education or experience. We recruit them in groups of 10. And we train them over a period of entire year, about 42 Sundays, 45 Sundays, and train them about everything related to research, related to social realities they live with, related to communications which they must learn. Because as you know, in India, nobody wants to listen. Everybody only wants to argue. <laughs> the famous argumentative Indians. So we want to get them away from that and learn to listen to people, especially the slum people with whom or the community people with whom they have to do research. And during this time, they pick a subject of their choice to do research. They do the research, collect the data, and then take the data back to the community and share it with them and usually come up with some solutions. So we had a group of young girls who travel from different train lines and from long distances come to Pakar. So they decided to do research on the actual sexual harassment that they go through during their travels. So they did interviews and they also did mapping of the spaces where they get harassed most. <laughs> what did they find out? So what they found out is that three places where these harassments are most, the first place is, of course, the bridges which connect two platforms because those bridges are usually narrow and usually not well lit. So that's first area where they get most harassment. Second area is near toilets, which are located on the railway platforms, or the ladies' toilets. People, usually men, usually stand around it all the time, make lewd comments, try to touch them. And the third space is usually when they get off and get on the train, the men uh, hang around there and try to harass them at those areas. And so they came up with a pretty comprehensive map of these places yes. across a long stretch of yes. la period yes, land? Yes, they did. And actually, going ahead, they did a couple of things. They have taken the maps. They have enlarged it. They have put in a poster format on railway stations. They also created posters based upon their research. And they have placed those on the stations where they mostly got off the trains or got on the trains. And most of all, I think we were really surprised the way they did it. They went to the labor, uh, to the railway people, got permissions and actually disseminated this research findings on the railway platforms with the people. So they had direct confrontations with their harassers, practically. Yes, absolutely. They got good amount of audiences in all four to five stations where they decided, because you know, each one of them came on a different line. So everyone picked two or three stations on her line to do this, and they were very successful. That's really interesting because, I mean, we hear a lot of things about harassment all over the world. In India, it seems like it's been a particularly virulent strain of harassment, public harassment on women. Yes. So we had another group, which are, again, college-bound girls. And now we have a big rule or a 
a mandatory sexual harassment committee that needs to be in every college. So these girls wanted to find out, did their college have one committee? Did the teachers know about it? Did the students know about it? So they went through this lots of interviews with their teachers, with the students and with the support staff. And guess what they found? They didn't have one? Yes. <laughs> they didn't have a committee. Nobody knew about it. Some people had heard about it, but nobody wanted to particularly do anything about it. So they took their research. They went to the principal. They went to their teachers and they said, okay, guys, something needs to be done. I'm talking with Dr. Anita Deshmukh. She is the executive director of PUKAR, a Mumbai-based NGO that trains uh, young people, barefoot researchers to produce culture-changing research. And uh, when I was there with you, uh, I took a tour of a slum on a pier and it was with a group of young people who were doing health and environmental research on the water quality, how it affects people's health, on lung disease that was happening on the pier. What kind of things are those people doing these days? So you met Kajol, Bali, Nizam, yeah. and Roman. Yeah. Yeah. They say hello to you. I Joe. say hello back. And people okay. can see uh, the tour that we took <laughs> on our website. We've got a film of the tour and it's very uh, affecting and makes quite an impression. So all four of them are currently working in a slum called Mandala, which is located on the M East Ward in Mumbai, which has the lowest human development index of the entire city. And what we are doing there is we are looking at the health-seeking behavior of slum residents who suffer from two chronic diseases, blood pressure and diabetes. The two methodologies we have used, in addition to the mapping, we have, of course, mapped the entire slum and we have mapped the households where people are suffering from these diseases. But we have done the surveys to find out what people's knowledge about these two diseases are. And then we are following 60 families with interviews every three months over a period of two years to find out their connection to the physicians who do they go to? Why do they go to those people? What are the treatments? Whether they follow the treatments or not? What is their expenditure? How do they find money for that kind of an expenditure? So all these things are very intricately looked at. But the most critical part, what I find about this project is when every time our barefoot researchers go to interview these families, they also do advocacy because, you know, you may not realize that, but many people in India, the minute they start feeling better, they stop the medication, whether it's diabetes or it is blood pressure. Yep. And then three months later, they're horribly sick. They don't make that connection that this is not a disease that you can stop taking medication, that you have to continue to take it every day, that you have to follow doctor's instructions, that if they say you have to do this kind of exercise or avoid this food, you must do it. This is the advocacy all our barefoot researchers do. And we also have a very, very effective health diary. So our barefoot researchers who are located in Mandala, they go to these homes, homes every 15 days and keep filling out the health diary. So it's a very comprehensive way of looking at people's behavior and whether we are going to be able to bring some changes in that behavior. It sounds like something that would work in other places, in Chicago, for instance, where we've got lots of blood pressure and diabetes and also lack of access to health care. We could certainly find out things about the way we do it. I really think so, because I think I also, as a physician, when I was working, also I also worked on the south side of Chicago. And 
One of the biggest commonalities I find, whether it is in Amis Ward or it is outside of Chicago, is lack of education and lack of knowledge. If people don't know, they are not going to act upon it. And that is something most medical facility people don't understand, that if your patient doesn't have the knowledge about the disease, patient is not going to follow what you're trying to tell them. And most doctors do not find the time to explain to them all of this. And this is a gap which a community-based youth can easily fill in. Have you gone to other places and seen other research models similar to this? Are there other people who are doing this kind of work with young people getting out there doing their own research and trying to make a difference? Actually, I was in London a month ago to attend a workshop where a lot of universities now everywhere in the world are working with community partners for doing research, whether the research is on medicine, whether it is on immigration, livelihoods, environment, everything. Difference I found is most of these community partners, A, don't work with youth. A lot of them actually work with women uh, because they find that women are a lot more stable. Uh, but we believe that in training the youth, we are also empowering the next generation and we are also giving them a part of their livelihood, which is at least in a country like India, it is very critical. The second major difference I found with, between whatever models I looked at is that most of these other models do not focus on social realities that exist in every community, whether it is in Middle East, whether it is in south part of London or whether it is in uh, Mumbai. Those social realities actually impact people's livelihoods very deeply. And those social realities are race, caste in India, class issues, gender issues, and environment. And I think we focus a lot on all these social realities, make sure that our youth becomes more and more aware of the prejudices they inherently have. And how are they going to break those prejudices? How are they going to break their own barriers so that they become a lot more open-minded before they can go out and talk to the community. Anita, you were a physician here for 20 years, and you worked on the South Side mostly and saw a lot of things that I'm sure you see in Mumbai. The level of violence might be similar, the level of violence against women we were talking about. We think we're awfully different at times, but are there things that make us really the same or have common solutions? I'm really happy, Jerome, you raised this issue of violence because I think I have seen violence of very similar kinds, whether it's outside of Chicago or whether it's up in Mumbai. And when we are talking about violence, we should not be concentrating only on gun violence, although that is very predominantly present in Chicago. But gun violence is, at the end of the day, a outcome of other kinds of violences that happen in the communities, which leads to gun violence. And those violences are same in Mumbai and in Chicago. It's a matter of economic violence. It's a matter of social violence. It's a matter of violence that is perpetrated against women, whether they are in Chicago or they are in Mumbai. It is also the economic exclusion, the lack of opportunity, the lack of level playing fields for youth here or in Mumbai. And while in Mumbai, it leads to a violence of a different kind, while in Chicago, 
it leads to a violence in terms of gun violence. But unless we are examining and looking at the etiologies of these violences, which are very similar, probably the solutions are also very similar. I mean, just before I entered the studio, Neela and I were talking about it, and I thought that unless we give an equal opportunity to the youth, and unless we are able through governance and through policies, we are able to create a level playing field, just addressing gun violence is not going to be the final solution. Inequality is a big deal in Mumbai, where there are some of the world's richest people now, and there are some of the world's poorest people. Absolutely. And I think most of the richest people in the city of Mumbai really are not even aware, or maybe they just don't wish to be aware, that their lives are made sustainable and so smooth. And they are standing on the shoulders of most of the people who live in slums. So it's their drivers and it is the people who take care of their children and it's the people who wash their cars and it is the people who bring them milk and newspapers every day. I mean, I often have thought about it. What if all these people who live in slums and do all these jobs, one day they go on strike? That city will come to a standstill completely. But we don't want to even acknowledge that they exist. There is no low-cost housing available in Mumbai, any place. And I was in New York last week and I saw rows and rows and rows of low-cost housing. We have nothing like that in Mumbai for anybody. No wonder people end up living in slums. You've been at this for a while. Have you seen young people move out of the program and utilize the things they've learned in their life as they move on? Yeah, so I'm actually delighted to share with you that currently in my office, almost 50% of my colleagues have come out of the youth fellowship program, leading their own projects, research projects, training various people, whether it is in Mumbai or whether it is in tribal area near Mumbai in a different district. And they have become leaders on their own rights. And I think, to me, that kind of a a transformation that has happened in their life is the real success story of our model. I'm talking with Dr. Anita Deshmukh. She is the executive director of Pukar, the Mumbai-based NGO, trains barefoot researchers to produce cultural change. And your offices, I've got to ask, because I saw some pictures of your offices after the flood in August. In August, all over South Asia, there were huge floods from Bangladesh to Mumbai. Many people died. Tens of millions were affected. And you got kind of knocked out by flooding. Unfortunately, yes. It's partly terribly poor or absent urban planning. It's partly total absence of rainwater harvesting in a city like Bombay, where we get massive amounts of rains every year. And it is partly people like us, and I would include myself in it, who drive around cars and pollute and bring about global warming, which ultimately becomes responsible for natural disasters, whether they are in Bangladesh or they are in Texas or in Puerto Rico. And now you just finished rehabbing your structure that you were in? Yes, we did. And now what do you do? Is it okay still? Yeah, 
now it is back to functioning normally of course we lost some critical important files and papers uh, fortunately because we had the experience of 2005 Uh, most of our hard drives and computers and datas and everything was saved but you know unfortunately because we do large 7 8 10 000 surveys we have lot of our survey papers which was still on the ground being uh, in a small space so we lost some of those well that's good do you have any aspirations for the future is there something you want to see pukar do so i would really like pukar to be a center for training youth to become barefoot researchers in every aspect of the community we really want to be that premier center of training youth to do this kind of work across the country and also not just across the country but across the continents i would love to work with some institution like chicago community trust for example and bring this model to chicago and see how we can make it work Dr. Anita Deshmukh is executive director of Pukar, the Mumbai-based NGO that trains young people, researchers to produce cultural change. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's really great to be in the city again. It was great to see Dr. Anita Deshmukh while she was here, as she practiced here for many years now, working in India. As we were talking about um, when we went and saw them a couple years ago, we did make a film about some of the barefoot researchers and the work that we were do- they were doing out there in uh, slums in Mumbai. And you can see it on our Facebook page at WBEZ Worldview. Uh, check us out there on Facebook and watch a short film about the work that the barefoot researchers are doing. Get it. get to meet a couple of them. Uh, it's quite impressive uh, work that they've done. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about Puerto Rico and more flooding, of course. Uh, we'll talk with a Puerto Rican artist who's just uh, back from Puerto Rico, and he is going to uh, mimic an event this weekend that would be happening in Puerto Rico if the hurricane wouldn't, wouldn't have struck. So hopefully you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.